Welcome to The Term, a podcast for the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Natalie. It's pretty slow, though, at the Supreme Court. It's, it, you know, we've been action-packed for so many weeks now that it's, maybe it's a little bit nice to kind of take a breath. There was only one opinion this week, no oral arguments, but, you know, we still have things to talk about, right? That's right. Yeah, it does feel like a little bit of a almost crash landing from especially like the last two weeks, but there's still stuff to talk about and actually some interesting orders this week, right, Jimmy? Yeah, there were. So Monday, um, there was obviously the normal orders list from the court's usual conference, and we didn't get any new cases taken up, but we got lots and lots of certain denials, and some of them were pretty interesting. For instance, one of them was the Supreme Court turned away an appeal from Pennsylvania to reinstate the uh, sex crimes conviction for Bill Cosby. Another one, which was pretty interesting, was a lawsuit against Facebook over alleged uh, sex trafficking. So this was a case from uh, an anonymous plaintiff claiming that Facebook had failed to warn her about the dangers of child sex trafficking and did not take appropriate measures to fight it on its website. Um, According to the plaintiff, she came into contact with a a predator on the site when she was 15 and she ran away from home after a fight with her mother and met the predator who raped her and forced her into prostitution. She eventually escaped and later sued Facebook in Texas state court. The case makes its way up to the state's high court, which allows part of the suit to proceed, but dismisses some of her claims against Facebook for negligence and product liability. So this is where it gets kind of interesting. The Texas Supreme Court had held that Facebook was essentially immune from those claims under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, Now, this is the law that basically shields internet companies from being held liable as publishers that you would maybe see in like a newspaper context. Okay, so they're not liable the same way a newspaper would be liable for one. So reporters, they're not liable for, you know, someone randomly posting something on their Facebook wall, basically. Right, exactly. So this is something that has been kind of bubbling up to the surface more and more as these suits against some of these big social media companies increase. You see a lot of these involving claims of a, a, of a social media company basically um, not doing enough to keep, for instance, people from planning crimes or even terrorism on their sites. But anyway, this is all to say that the Supreme Court denies cert. And you know there would be nothing more to it than that other than there was an interesting statement that was written by Justice Clarence Thomas kind of wading into this issue of Section 230 immunity for some of these internet companies. So he kind of agrees that um, this court was right to turn down this particular case, but, and this is something he's done in a past case as well, he's not content to just let the issue go. He says, you know, the court should really examine um, whether, uh, you know, some of these companies should be given such blanket immunity in a lot of these cases. And he says, quote, here, the Texas Supreme Court afforded publisher immunity, even though Facebook allegedly, quote, knows its system facilitates human traffickers in identifying and cultivating victims, close quote, but has nonetheless, quote, failed to take any reasonable steps to mitigate the use of Facebook by human traffickers. And this is the allegation in the lawsuit. And he's saying that, you know, assuming, quote, Congress does not step in to clarify 230's scope, we should do so in an appropriate case. This is all to say, Thomas says that 
the plaintiff's petition here dealt with the dismissal of one of her claims while another was allowed to proceed. So it wasn't technically ripe for Supreme Court review in his mind. But you see kind of him doing, once again, the clarion call to, to revisit an issue that he's paid a close attention to. Yeah, this is definitely, I think, a, a very classic uh, Clarence Thomas move. Oh, it's and a we've Thomas it, special, we've, yeah. We've seen it before, and we've seen it work, right? We've seen even years afterwards, the court will end up taking up that case um, that, you know, fits better. So we'll, we'll see how long it, it might take uh, on this one for another of these cases to bubble up. But yeah, that was definitely kind of a bit of an action-packed orders list. Um, also on Monday, though, as you mentioned, we got an opinion. Um, this one was in Wooden versus United States. Uh, probably not a case that's been on everyone's radar, but it's an important ruling for those in the criminal law community because it clarifies the kind of three strikes threshold that is under the Armed Career Criminal Act. So under the Armed Career Criminal Act, you know, you have three felony offenses where you're armed and you're defined as a career criminal. And that means you get a mandatory 15-year sentence for the next offense. But and this is where this case comes in. There's this language in the in the law about, you know, on occasions different from one another, right? And so this case basically asks, does going on a crime spree one night, you know, specifically kind of having a multiple of the same type of offenses, does that rack you up the number of incidents to be considered a career criminal under this act? And the justices on Monday said no, fairly resoundingly, although this one attracted a bunch of in-part concurrences, and it was kind of an interesting. Um, it was kind of an interesting batch of opinions to wade into. Those are my favorite, the ones where it's part A and part B, and this one joined that one and the other. <laughs> I like them as long as I'm not like the like the reporter on deadline to like write them because I always feel terrible for the reporters on deadline who have to like write very quickly. Like, what does this all mean, right? Right. Well, unluckily for you, you are the one who has to now explain it all to us. So <laughs> let's hear what the yes. justices had to say. Okay. So let's back up a little bit and just, um, so the case involves William Dale Wooden, who broke into a mini storage facility in Georgia in 1997 and, you know, burglarized a bunch of units, later pled guilty to 10 separate burglary charges tied to that quote unquote night of crime. Fast forward 2015, he's found guilty of possessing firearms as a felon. So now the feds had originally asked after this 2015 case for a 21-month sentence. But then they counted those 10 mini storage burglary charges as separate incidents and argued that he's a career criminal. He was sentenced to 15 and a half years. The Sixth Circuit actually agreed with the government on their reasoning for how to count the charges. But there's a circuit split, right? It, Courts have interpreted kind of the occasions language of the Armed Career Criminal Act in different ways. So this is how we got here, right? This is how we got to the to the Supreme Court. Um, and Kagan, writing for the majority opinion, was basically like, no, the ordinary meaning of the word occasion is one episode or event. You know, you wouldn't normally say if you're telling someone about like, you know, the crime spree that happened, that it happened on 10 different occasions. But on this one occasion, he burglarized 10 units. Now, there's some wiggle room here in, in, in the majority opinion that's saying, you know, look, there's going to be hard cases where if, you know, someone does something at one space and then goes on later to do something else, you know, in a different location, maybe 
that's considered two different offenses, right? If there's, you know, a gap of time or, you know, a, a, a you know, a distance to be measured. Um, but she's like, you know, look, let's keep the Armed Career Criminals Act history and purpose in mind, which was really to put harsher penalties on people who've done multiple felonies, you know, career, over, if you will, you know, no yes, one would over their, say that over their criminal career. Yes. Right. No one would accuse someone of becoming a career criminal over the course of the robbery of one storage facility. So, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. But uh, tell me about some of um, <clears throat> maybe the concurrences that we saw. You know, everyone pretty much agreed with like, look, this guy, it's not 10 different occasions. Like, it's not it. But, you know, we, there were a bunch of different concurrences. Barrett and Thomas were one, you know, and they were like, they're specifically dealt with, you know, saying that the court was wrong to suppose Congress added this occasions language to avoid a similar early case. And so their their concurrence kind of related on that. But the bulk of the concurrences actually here actually centered around either agreeing, adding to, or disagreeing with Justice Gorsuch, who basically was saying, look, this multi-factor test that, you know, Justice Kagan's kind of laying out here is not going to work well, especially for hard cases. You know, it, it's, we're, we're just asking kind of for more trouble down the road here. It's, it's not going to resolve this issue. Um, and he said to rely on the rule of lenity. And I don't know if I'm saying that right, so I apologize to anyone if I'm not. <laughs> Basically, rule of lenity is like, you know, and if there's any reasonable doubt about the application of this penal law, it's got to be resolved in favor of liberty, in favor of not finding guilty against this person. You know, so Sotomayor agreed in parts. Kavanaugh disagreed. He's like, look, this is not going to help. <laughs> he's, <laughs> like, he's like, the rule of lenity is that, you know, there, there's a lot of um, wiggle room here for personal bias from the judges. You know, the multi-factor test is a better approach, you know, at least at first. Do you have this kind of like side doctrinal argument yes. happening in the context of this case involving the Armed Career Criminal Act? That's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, you know, look, I'm not going to like delve super deep into the details of all the concurrences, but I would just say, you know, it, it's a very interesting discussion for anyone who's kind of interested in the Armed Career Criminal Act or the rule of lenity. Highly recommend reading um, and parsing through that. Kind of yeah, discussion I'm, the justices were basically having with each other, and they were like kind of calling each other out. Like, I know Justice Barrett said this, or Justice Gorsuch said this, but like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, not to get too much deeper into the weeds than we already are, but I mean, the rule of lenity, at least from Justice Gorsuch's perspective, it kind of seems to be in line with some of his other like uh, judicial doctrines or, or legal philosophies, namely that you know you shouldn't just generally you know, read ambiguous statutes to the benefit of the government. And whether that's, you know, a federal agency defending its rulemaking or maybe in the context of a prosecutor's office defending their charges against a particular criminal. So, yeah, you might see a, a trend there. That's, that's a pretty fascinating case. Now, I want to turn back to some of the orders that we saw this week. There were an interesting pair of orders uh, that were handed down in the shadow docket on Monday night. Um, these came to the Supreme Court in the context of applications from Republican voters challenging new congressional maps that had been ordered by state Supreme Courts in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Now, the Supreme Court actually rejected both of those challenges, which essentially means that those state court ordered maps will continue to be in place for the 2022 
midterm elections, which some claim will actually benefit the Democrats in those states more than the original maps that were drawn up by the uh, state legislatures. Okay, so how did we get here? This is part of the litigation that we've seen stemming out of the redistricting process to come out of the 2020 census, which obviously, you know, creates new apportionment obligations on um, state legislatures to draw up new maps for congressional races going forward. So there's inevitably partisan fighting over the creation of some of these new maps. And specifically, these two in North Carolina and Pennsylvania were challenged by Democrats um, for being partisan gerrymanders. And so they went basically to state court um, in both of these cases, and the state Supreme Court ordered the creation of new maps. Those orders were basically based on their belief that the original partisan gerrymanders violated their state constitutions, protections of things like free elections. And so we have now a situation where these maps are ordered by these state Supreme Courts, and then you have Republicans in turn going to the Supreme Court with these emergency requests to block the, the new maps, which obviously, as I've said earlier, have you know leveled the playing field in the eyes of Democrats or you know, given Democrats an unfair advantage in the eyes of Republicans. So what was significant about the court's decision on Monday? What, where does it kind of leave us? Where does it kind of push this you know, pipeline of litigation towards? I think the immediate consequence, obviously, as I've said, is that these maps will be used for the upcoming elections and that the Supreme Court, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, rejected these two challenges in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania. But there's a kind of a bigger issue here, and that is that despite denying these applications, Republicans will be satisfied to know that there's kind of a growing mass of justices on the Supreme Court that actually agree with their underlying you know, legal claims. And, and, and this gets to this kind of legal issue that maybe you've seen kind of percolating around the kind of legal commentariat, but it, it goes to this issue called the independent state legislature doctrine. So what these Republican litigants had argued in their appeals to the Supreme Court is that the state Supreme Courts essentially had no authority under the elections clause of the Constitution to order the creation of these new electoral maps. So in short, the idea is that the elections clause of the Constitution vests the authority to set you know, time, place, and manner rules for federal elections with state legislatures, not with state courts. So when a state Supreme Court intervenes and orders the creation of a new map that maybe gives Democrats a, you know, a few more seats than they otherwise would have had, that that actually violates the U.S. Constitution, the federal Constitution, um, and specifically the elections clause. And so the Supreme Court, you know, it, it hasn't actually formally adopted this standard, or if it has not in the context of a recent you know, election here. Uh, but what you're seeing is that it's kind of gaining more and more traction. So this was, I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, Natalie, but this is an argument that was made over and over again during the 2020 election and a lot of this litigation. The idea being that you know, state Supreme Courts couldn't you know, take, take it into their own hands under the state constitution to create more voter access through things like absentee ballots or ballot bo drop boxes or basically crafting other election rules in order to accommodate this public health crisis. In the eyes of a lot of these Republican challengers, that was state courts usurping the authority of the state legislatures in those states under the U.S. Constitution to set their election laws. So, like I said, the Supreme Court hasn't like formally accepted this in like a new contemporary case. However, we saw an interesting dissent from 
Alito, joined by Thomas and Gorsuch, saying that you know the, the Republican challenges are likely to prevail on the merits of their claims and that we should have taken this case up. This was a, a dissent specifically in the context of the North Carolina case. There were no recorded dissents with the Pennsylvania case. But Alito says basically, quote, we will have to resolve this question sooner or later, and the sooner we do so, the better. This case presented a good opportunity to consider the issue, but unfortunately, the court has again found the occasion inopportune. Pretty strong words, kind of similar to how we were discussing about Justice Thomas, you know, kind of asking for a case that fits here to, to be brought to the court. I feel like I remember Justice Kavanaugh in those kind of earlier election cases being an important vote one way or another in, in some of those. Where did he end up standing on this one? Justice Kavanaugh agrees with the majority of the Supreme Court that they shouldn't have taken up either of these two cases. And he writes a concurrence explaining why. And in his concurrence, he says that basically he feels it's too close to the election for the Supreme Court to intervene and to change the voting rules. We've heard him refer to this before as the Purcell principle. In fact, he had kind of explained his reasoning under the Purcell principle in last month's um, Alabama redistricting case. But at the same time, he kind of gives a little bit more hope to Republican litigants especially those who endorse this theory of the independent state legislature doctrine, by writing that, I agree with Justice Alito that the underlying elections clause question raised in the emergency application is important and that both sides have advanced serious arguments on the merits. Now, now he's not saying necessarily that he completely agrees and that he would vote to rule in favor of their theory. But if you are counting votes in a particular hypothetical case going forward, this is probably a, a good sign that he's at least open-minded and willing to consider um, this issue and, and specifically the idea that state Supreme Courts don't have this authority. Now, the repercussions could be huge, obviously, if the Supreme Court endorses this theory. Now, Ryan Boyson, Law360 reporter, um, wrote a really fascinating feature about just what that would mean. And he interviewed a few attorneys basically saying that if the Supreme Court doesn't, in fact, you know, accept this theory, that state Supreme Courts you know, basically should stay out of the business of congressional redistricting, then that would essentially remove the final guardrail against partisan gerrymandering around the country. So the U.S. Supreme Court has already said that Partisan gerrymandering is non-justiciable from their perspective. So that leaves state courts interpreting their state constitutions as currently kind of the last stand against like, some of the more egregious partisan gerrymandering claims that you see, um, where they say, you know, it's a violation of our state constitution to craft your maps in this way. Now, if the Supreme Court adopts a theory that the state Supreme Courts have no recourse or no ability to review some of these maps, then who does that leave to check a state legislature that is completely intent on creating these egregious partisan gerrymandering uh, maps that you know, dilute the voting power of the opposing minority party? Yeah, this obviously is an issue that I think we're just going to keep seeing bubble up at the court, especially as we get closer to some elections. Um, 
Kind of speaking of voting, though, I wanted to just, you know, before we wrap up here, kind of give a, a brief update on the confirmation process for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who is um, up for a seat at the Supreme Court. Things seem to be rolling along, although uh, perhaps too fast for Senator Chuck Grassley, who this week urged his fellow senators to kind of pump the brakes in the process. He said specifically that, you know, Judge Jackson's time at the U.S. Sentencing Commission and as a federal public defender are areas that kind of warrant scrutiny of certain records and need a little bit more time. Let's slow things down. Uh, I have not gotten and or seen any kind of sense that that's actually going to happen in terms of slowing down. It just seemed like, you know, things keep rolling along. So um, we're still headed, I think, towards a early April voting session here. Well, Natalie, I think that just about does it for this week. Uh, We'll be back next week uh, to catch listeners up on all the high court action. Thanks, Jimmy. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Contributing reporters this week, Marco Poggio and PG D'Annunzio and Ryan Boyson. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. Oh, and please write us a review.